So we're carrying on with our Mark series tonight. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd like to get one, there should be some at the front. I can't see any of them there, definitely. Um, we're going to really have our noses in the Bible tonight. And uh, we're up to Mark chapter 7, um, beginning at verse 1. So if you want to just find that, um, it should come up on the screen as well, so you can follow it there. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. It's a bit odd, isn't it? And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honour your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. So it's quite a passage. Um, it's one of the meatiest ones. When I used to teach Mark's gospel as part of being an RE teacher, this was definitely one of the hardest ones for the kids to get their heads around. Um, but it's a really important one. And I think actually at its heart, the messages are quite clear and quite simple. So I hope that's where we get to tonight. But as we look at it at first glance, it may appear that it's all about washing hands. Now, this is quite a big thing in my household, hand washing. We are constantly throughout the day saying to the boys, have you washed your hands? Have you washed your hands? This is Gilbert, our eldest, when he was just two. And uh, this is actually the picture that's in our lavatory downstairs on the wall 
like a kind of revision post-it note, you know. So every time they're in the loo, they remember to wash their hands. And look at that smile as well. It causes such delight when you're clean. I mean, I always get the uh, retort, you know, um, do I need to wash my hands? And I say, yes, but I haven't touched anything. <laughs> and I say, well, I hope you did, because I hope you put the toilet seat up. So they get themselves in trouble if they say that. Um, I won't tell you exactly what they say, but uh, you can imagine. But they're pretty good at washing their hands. It's something we're quite important. It's quite important for us. But this passage isn't really about hand washing. It's about um, the scribes, okay? So they are coming to Jesus. They're coming from far off. And they are coming to see him because they've heard about him. So you might expect them to come to him because they've heard that the blind can see. Or no. Or they've heard that the deaf can hear. Or that lepers have been healed and cleansed from the leprosy. Because we'd expect them to be excited about the things that were coming out of Jerusalem. But no, they have come, Ross was saying, 80 to 100 miles or so, all the way there to have a go at Jesus. They said, you're not washing your hands correctly. That's what they said. That's what they saw. Now, scribes were religious leaders that weren't just there to write things out. Okay, as scribes had originally started on the journey of doing they're more like lawyers. They are enforcers. So they're like the kind of religious police. So they were called in, probably by the Pharisees in Jerusalem. You better come here. This guy is not doing things as they should be done. So they're coming with that agenda. You're not washing your hands correctly. But look again at the first verses. What is Jesus particularly concerned about? Verse 5, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, verse 6, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of God. Well, this is Jesus's first concern, and I think he has two. His first concern seems to me to be that their concerns reflect human teaching, not God's word. And I think it's important just to think about that word tradition, isn't it? I mean, are traditions wrong? Do you have any traditions? Um, I've got a friend who has a tradition of the birthday chair. So whenever it's someone's birthday in their family, they get a chair and they tie balloons and they put streamers and ridiculous hats and anything they can find that's going to make the person just happy. They tie it to the chair and as soon as that person comes downstairs, they have to sit in the birthday chair and they have their breakfast in the birthday chair and they open their presents in the birthday chair. And it's just such a lovely tradition. I remember her doing it with her kids when they were tiny and now they're quite big. They probably find it a bit embarrassing, but they, it's lovely. It's a family tradition. Um, last year on New Year's Eve, um, I took the boys to the Everyman for the pantomime um, about four o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, while I was there, James cleaned the house, <laughs> got all the uh, canapes ready, and then picked us all up, me and the boys. And we came home and we had some friends around and the house was tidy and clean. We did a giant jigsaw puzzle. We played games, we put music on and we just had a lovely New Year's Eve. So I've decided that's gonna be a tradition. James, is that okay? <laughs> So I'll be getting three tickets again for the pantomime. 
Um, but it was just a really lovely thing. And the boys said, oh, can we do this again next year? So I don't know what your traditions are or whether you're in the process of um, putting some together. I don't think they're wrong in themselves. That's not what Jesus is saying, is it? But it's when they are elevated to the place of God's word or even higher than God's word that they become a problem. And the um, example that he describes in the passage is this thing called Corban, which is just an odd word, not Jeremy Corbyn. It's not like that. It's not related to him. Um, But what it is, is basically that what these Jews were doing was that um, instead of honouring their parents in their old age by providing for them, there was no sense of pensions in those days. It was a duty for Jewish people to provide for their parents. Um, Instead of doing that, they said, oh, if you decide that you're going to give that money to the church, to the temple instead, then you, don't, you no longer have to provide for your parents. In fact, if you did provide for your parents, it would be wrong of you to do it. So what ended up happening is you end up having some elderly people in the community who weren't cared for by their, by their children, even though they had the means to do so. And that was because the religious leaders had made it possible. So Jesus is saying, that's wrong. That goes directly against God's command in the Ten Commandments, honour your mother and father. God really cares about parents being looked after in their old age. Isn't that great? You know, he said to John, didn't he, when he was on the cross, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. You know, I think that's lovely. That's the compassionate heart of God, wanting to make sure that everybody is looked after and no one is left without provision that they need in the community. Okay, that's a challenging thing, isn't it? Who is in our community who isn't being provided for? Where are we perhaps uh, not not seeing the need and and honouring God and his concerns? So what they've done, these scribes, and what they've brought into is an institution where human teaching has made God's teaching null and void or it has overridden it. So that's the first point. Their concerns reflect human teaching not God's word. And it just got me thinking, you know, I felt the Holy Spirit just saying, where does our teaching, where does our human tradition, our ways of doing things override God's word? So do we even think God's word has authority today? I think this is such a message, such a word in season for the church now. Because I don't know about you, but I regularly talk to Christians And I regularly read stuff that Christians have written that seems to me to undermine God's word. Something I heard a Christian say a couple of years ago, we were talking about tithing. And they said, oh, we don't tithe. We give in other ways. But God's word says to tithe. That's giving 10% of our income to the church. So that might be one that God just might be speaking to you about now. Um, another one is um, this idea of not believing in a literal hell. You know, the idea that God is a God of love and therefore nobody would be away from him um, after death. But the Bible speaks regularly about hell as a reality and about our need to tell people about Jesus so that nobody will have to end up there. You know, if we don't believe in a literal hell, are we actually going to bother telling anyone? about Jesus? Are we going to be that bothered that they will know that he is the way to salvation and only him? That's another one, isn't it? 
Our culture says all the time, even in the church, human teaching, many ways to God, many different gods, many different ideas. You know, but they all come down to one thing we hear, don't we, quite regularly. God is a God of love. I don't think he'd judge anyone. We hear Christians say this often. I'm probably offending lots of people here tonight. But I believe this is the message that God has put on my heart to share. And I'm going to say it. Um, Sabbath. This is one that we have been um, trying to do lately. Um, you know, in the Ten Commandments, it says to keep the Sabbath day holy. And what really breaks my heart is um, people undergoing, so many people undergoing anxiety and stress at the moment. And uh, I was just reading an article in the Telegraph this weekend. Don't judge me. I read a whole range of different papers. But um, it was about a guy who, who found that he was wired because he was not unplugging regularly. And I just encourage you, uh, we've been trying in our home to just not check our phones. I'm sorry if you sent me a message today. I haven't seen it. <laughs> we try to not check our phone, not plug in. Did watch the England match though, so the TV was on for a bit. But we try to go with, you know, John Mark Comer's recommendations when he was at New Wine. He said, you know, is it worshipful? Is it restful? If you think about those two things, if you have a day a week where you're doing things that are encouraging you just to switch off, just to rest, just to focus in on God for a day, it's what we need. That's what God's word says we need, is a day a week that is the Sabbath. Okay, And I think at our own peril, we've ignored that, haven't we? I have in the church. So I'm sure that in the world, people are ignoring that too. What a great message we have, though. I think that is a word in season for our friends who are suffering and struggling with not unplugging, not rebooting, actually to have a day a week that looks different. I think that's a great one we can share. There's loads of others, aren't there? I mean, I'm not even going to go into it now, but God created them male and female. And there are so many people confused, so confused about gender identity. I think we've got something to say about that something good. So where does your opinion, where does my opinion trump God's word? You know, where is there a God's word says, but I say in my life? That's something I'm thinking about. Colossians 2 verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. It's something we have to work at. See to it that no one does that to you, says the word. That's going to take a bit of focus, isn't it? And a bit of work. Because I do sometimes just see um, online people liking comments that have been made by Christians without perhaps thinking through, and I'm sure I've done this, without really thinking through the implications of those comments and those ideas. Um, I read an article um, when I was um, an RE teacher. We had a whole load of different resources. I used to sometimes get a magazine that was a Muslim magazine, and I was flicking through the articles, and there was a testimony about a guy who had been brought up a Muslim, sorry, had been brought up a Christian, but had turned to Islam. And the reason he turned to Islam was because he was looking for a strong set of moral guidelines. He didn't find them in the church. He found them in Islam. And I'll never forget that article. And I thought, actually, we have got something good to offer people that will help them light in the darkness. So let's not hide it under a bushel. So unless 
Jesus said or did otherwise, God's word, all of God's word holds. There's a lovely little um, line in the, um, I don't know whether any of you get the word for today, coming to your phone or you know, something just to read at some point during the day as a little thought. But there was a, an article just a few days ago and the, and the, and the verse was from John 8.31. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And this is how um, Bob Gass explained it. I think he, he explains things really well sometimes. To abide, he said, means to reside in a certain place. It makes us think of home, the place where you find joy, acceptance, encouragement, support, protection, purpose, identity, and rest. To live inside the word of God. Isn't that amazing? To feel like you're protected, sustained, accepted and encouraged within the word of God. There's been times in my life when I've been more passionate for God's word than others. When I first um, began to know Jesus at 15, I remember God put such a fire in my heart for the word that I used to get home from school, dump my bag and just rush up to my bedroom to have my time with God, my little youth Bible, my pencil, you know, going through, what does God have to say to me today? Just so encouraged. I'm in that place again now and I just encourage you to get in that place by regularly opening God's word with the spirit you know I think what's revolutionized reading the bible for me is asking the Holy Spirit to speak to me through the word of God before I even start reading Holy Spirit what do you have to say to me today in this passage and even the fustiest oldest passage you know some of the 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 bible you'll find hard but there's always something keep reading just keep reading until something captures your heart God hits home it might be a whole passage it might just be a verse it might even be a couple of words but I haven't when I come to God in that way asking the spirit to partner with me as I read I never fail never fail to feel at home to abide to reside to be encouraged to be nourished So if Jesus considered God's word to have authority, so will I. I love that song. If creation still obeys you, so will I. And obeying God is not something that the church is known for at this time. Okay? (laughs) The impact of the word. (laughs) If creation still obeys you, so will I. So will I, if Jesus obeyed your word, if Jesus quoted your word, if Jesus thought your word was true, if Jesus knew your word had power, so will I. I'm going to be like that. So, Jesus' beefs with the scribes. I'm sorry I've used that word. I don't really know another word to use instead. His beefs with the scribes. It's kind of a word we use at home. Firstly, their concerns reflect human opinion, not God's word. But the second beef he has, second issue, (laughs) is that their actions do not come from the heart. Their actions don't come from the heart. It's all about appearances. And it reminds me really um, of this bunch of women.
that's my world, actually. <laughs> if you've ever been to the sort of um, school gate, that's what you're going to see. You're going to see a lot of women in their active wear. And actually, this works. You know, you put your active wear on and you feel like you've done something, even when you haven't done anything. I mean, it's amazing. I've seen women vaping in their active wear at the school gate. It's so true. It's so funny. But um, it makes that point, doesn't it, that um, when we sort of take on the appearance of something... We don't actually have to, we feel like we don't actually have to be doing it really. But we look like we're doing it and that's enough. And it's, that's the way um, we are, isn't it, in our society quite often is sometimes we've, we've got reality muddled up with the appearance of reality. And I think that happens in the passage very much. So if you look at verse 14, this is where Jesus just teaches the message. And I don't apologise for repeating a decent chunk here. We're going to read 14 down to... 20 and just asking God just to really let it go in deep and he called the people to him again and said to them hear me all of you and understand there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him but the things that come out of a person are what defile him and when he had entered the house and left the people his disciples asked him about the parable and he said to them then are you also without understanding Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. So it's really that sense, isn't it, of looking at the heart and not the outside And it's something I think that's really hard in our culture to resist. But we have to actively resist it. You know, that that, that verse we had before, see to it. See to it that you don't do that. And there are lots of people in our church community who are seeing to it that they don't just focus on appearances and not the heart. So I know of somebody in our church community who's having a whole year of not buying any clothes. They are doing a wear what's there campaign. So this person just recognised that buying stuff had become a bit of a thing for her. So she was going to have a whole year and she's been blogging about it and it's really encouraging. She's being vulnerable about doing that. I know someone else who had a month off Facebook because they felt that they were just too influenced by what they could see on there. I know someone else who doesn't go to festivals, Christian festivals, because they know they'd be tempted to try to... um, associate with certain people, Um, they try to um, follow people in order to get recognised and get involved in certain bands and be be somebody, even an extremely talented person, they just don't want to be someone that's a sort of hanger-on in a Christian worship context. Um, I went to a friend's house um, not long ago and their house was absolutely pristine. I mean, it was something out of, um, you know, home like a a beautiful country and home magazine and it was perfect they had cleaned they've got two children it must have killed her they cleaned they had all of this beautiful stuff you know everything was bang on trend the kitchen was painted in all the latest shades of gray and green and it was just wow it was amazing and on the way home I was daydreaming about all the things I needed to do to my house to just bring it up to date and make it you know better and make it as sharp And uh, I came to church and my friend prayed for me and she said, I didn't tell her about that. And she just said, I've got this picture of like an embroidery 
You know one of those embroideries that's all messy on the bottom, but there's a beautiful picture underneath, but it's on the floor of your house. And straight away, I knew that God was saying, the place where your house is beautiful is on the floor when you're sitting there with your kids and you're playing cars and you're playing Lego. That's what's beautiful about your home. And God was just releasing me, saying, you don't need to worry about whether there's beautiful frames on the wall, individual frames, by the way, in a sort of different, in a setting. Um, I daydreamed about that. Or a selection of green plants in a corner. Or candles in great big lantern holders. God was saying, it doesn't matter. What makes your home beautiful is your your family and your family life and the choices that you have made. It was so encouraging of God to remind me about that, what was really going on in our home and not just what a home looked like. It's about, you have to be vulnerable, don't you, sometimes? You have to just step out and be vulnerable with that. I wonder where it is for you. Um, you know, for some people, it might be the gym culture. You know, if, I, if I'm feeling bad about myself, if I've gone out and got drunk and done stupid things, I'm going to go to the gym tomorrow. I'm going to go to the gym, hour and a half, I'm going to absolutely beast myself because then I'll look better, I'll feel better. It's an outward thing, isn't it? And Jesus is saying, you can't work outside in. That is not going to make a difference to what is going on in your heart. Um, there's lots of examples I can think of of where people put appearances before um, the, the, the reality. One of my favourites that really makes me laugh is the Nelson Mandela Memorial, where, I think we've got a photo of him, where there was a guy doing sign language. I don't know whether anyone saw it. Um, he's, he's the guy sort of on the right in both instances. So when Barack Obama was speaking, this guy was signing. But the problem was, nothing that he did made any sense whatsoever in any of the sign languages in the world. He literally was standing there kind of just doing all sorts of different movements and, and sort of moving around. And, and there's sort of people tweeting all over there, what's he, what's he doing? What, what language is he talking? Which, which, oh, it's, not, it's not Swahili um, sign language. It's not English sign language. Apparently there's different languages. Didn't know that. But he just basically was blagging it. He'd just been asked to do it, said yes, and just stood behind him sort of doing all of this. I think it's hilarious. How did he get to that position? But people do, don't they? People get to the very top of their professions, blagging it, you know, just looking the part the appearances of things. It's hilarious, but it's how our world operates. I mean, that is an example. The most powerful man in the universe, was, he was standing next to him, and yet he was talking complete nonsense. It's the emperor's new clothes, isn't it? It's everywhere. So that's a funny one. But a really sobering one um, is Grenfell, isn't it? You know, how heartbreaking is that? But nothing shows the tragedy, the danger, the seriousness of focusing on appearances over reality, like Grenfell. You know, what, what were those people that put the panelling on the outside of the building concerned with, if not the appearance of the building only? Didn't know that it was fireproof. Didn't know that it was a fire hazard. The fire exits within the building hadn't even been checked in years. They were way out of date. It shows the painful seriousness of focusing only on the outward. And that's why I wanted to make that point with this very sobering image, that it's the same for us. You know, when we focus only on the outward, it is devastating. It is, it's potentially fatal. Because before we know it, you know, Jesus told many stories about this, didn't he? You know, that the guy who just built the barns and stored stuff inside the barns, built them bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, probably thinking at some point I will settle down, I'll actually focus on my heart. 
Jesus said, you fool, tonight your life was demanded of you. Where are your barns now? What, what use is that now? What use is the storing things up? What use is the appearance when, when, when life is so fragile? So this is a matter of urgency to actually consider our hearts. The external rituals of the scribes weren't helping the problem at all because the heart of the problem is not external. The heart of the problem, you've probably heard it said, is the human heart. That was where the problem was. And I think this is really hard to hear. When I first read the list that Jesus gives of all the things that come out of the heart, the lust, the envy, the slander, I felt really low. I felt, you know, if we heard a minister doing that, we might feel judged by that message. But I don't think that's Jesus' intention at all. It's hard to hear for us, not because we don't believe it, but because we do. It's hard for us to hear that list because we know it, don't we, deep down? We know that that's where our brokenness is. And it's scary that anyone else might know it. It's scary particularly for some character types, some personality types like mine. I've mentioned the Enneagram before. In the Enneagram, if anyone knows it, I'm a type one. It's also known as a perfectionist. And um, type ones find it very hard to have a relationship with somebody because they don't want someone to get so close that they can see all of their foibles and all of their insecurities and all of their imperfections. That's where I was the night before I got married to James. I was in a whole world of pain. I was in a whole world of turmoil. Um, And I felt really scared. I felt really scared. And I went into my room and I, I, I prayed to God. And I said, God, I am just feeling so terrified. Would you show me why? Would you show me where that comes from? And I've shared this before. Straight away, I was a kid. I was doing a sports day race. I was standing at the start line and I looked across at where all the parents were gathered. And my dad wasn't there. He was working. It was completely understandable. But my dad was a PE teacher. My dad was this you know, sports fanatic. I wanted him to see me win this race. I was going to win. And he wasn't there. And I felt that same fear. I felt this sense of being on my own. I felt this sense of, of, of insecurity. I said, God, would you show me where you were in that memory? And do you know what God showed me? He showed me this great big deck chair, like a massive one with great big drinks holders. He was sitting in it. He had a, a, a cap, like a sort of American dad type cap, a giant Coca-Cola, a big bag of popcorn, and he was just cheering me on. And that was where my father was. It was that love that let me feel I could just relax in that moment and just allow him to be with me. And the same thing happened the next day. I, got to, I started walking up the aisle and James turned around and he just looked so excited. And I felt such a sense of love, of being loved by him, that I felt it's okay to be vulnerable. I've got my father watching me, cheering me on. And I've got James. It's going to be okay. I'm loved. And that's already been said tonight. I think it's on purpose. We can bring our vulnerability and our insecurities to God Because he meets us. He more than meets us. He bowls us over. He drowns us in his love. So if that's you today, if you're struggling with being vulnerable, with actually bringing your heart to God, I want to encourage you that there is no escaping vulnerability. If we want to experience joy, if you're feeling a bit dead, 
that just might be a reason. We can avoid pain, but we'll also avoid joy if we escape vulnerability. Frenny Brown says, you're imperfect and you're wired for struggle, but you are worthy of love and belonging. So the message that Jesus gives about the state of our heart isn't a destination in itself, but it is a place we need to pass through, isn't it? We know we've not got it right, but that's what repentance and belief is for and faith. So are we creating places where we can be vulnerable with one another? It's been really good what God's doing in the men's work here at church. I've been so encouraged by it. Um, Just a couple of weeks ago, some of the men, in fact, 35 of the men, which is amazing, camped out overnight on something called the fire night. Um, And they had to leave their phones behind. And they just had to take the bare minimum of stuff. And um, there was this amazing talk James told me about. And he said, I could share it. I said, is it a secret? Is it like a secret for the fire night? He's like, no, no, I think it's okay. And the introduction was Nick Eden just shared. He just said, guys, tonight, this is not about comparison. It's not about how much we earn. It's not even about what kit we've brought or haven't brought. This is just about us being vulnerable with each other, us being men together. So I just want to encourage us to ask that question. Do we have places where we can be vulnerable with each other? And do we create those places for others? Do we create those places for our friends? Um, Another thing about the guys, um, our life group, we're really just trying to share our faith. We've got one that's geographical, which is great for getting to know each other's friends and neighbours. And there was a kids' party recently, and um, James met a guy at the kids' party who was a friend of Andy Cook's, and um, they got talking. And this guy said, um, and James sort of shouted over to Andy, oh, pub night Tuesday. And this guy chipped in. He said, um, oh, you go in the pub on Tuesday? And James is like, yeah, it's our life group. We go to the pub and we just like share how our day was, how our you know, lives are going. We pray for each other. And he went, oh, that, that sounds really good. He said, um, oh, I tried to get a bit of a pub night going, but it didn't, really, it didn't really get going. So James said, look, you are really welcome to come. And um, later on, he said to Andy's wife, Lauren, oh, you know, I think I'd really like to come to that night, that Tuesday night. So um, Lauren texted James and they, 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 they arranged it. And four guys, including this guy, just one of the dads of some of the kids that, that, we, that hang out together, came along to the pub. And they started going around saying, how was your day? And one of them just started opening up, just being honest, being real. Another one did. This guy opened up completely, shared where he was at. And um, someone said, let's pray. And they just started to pray in the pub. And this guy said his own little prayer as well. And at the end, he said, oh, I really needed that. Thanks so much. His wife comes to our refresh event once a month. And she, she said, I saw her on Thursday. She said, oh, he really needed that. Thanks so much. How great is that? So let's be vulnerable in the church, but let's also bring people in. Let's actually invite people to join in or let's go over to them. We're actually going to help him out with a community event that he's organising. We're just going to get on the back of that and try and bless that as well. So places of vulnerability. So just to sum up really where we've got to, Jesus is beast with the Jewish lawyers. Their concerns reflect human opinion, not God's word. Something to ponder for us tonight, isn't it? Where does our human teaching override God's word? And the other point, their actions do not come from the heart. How vulnerable are we with God? How vulnerable are you 
with God. It says in God's word, you do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You don't want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart. Oh God, he won't reject you. Whatever state you come to him tonight, whatever you're dealing with, however unworthy you feel, whatever you've done, a broken and contrite heart, if you're honest with him, you will not be rejected. Far from it. You will be accepted with open arms. So I'm just going to ask the guys to come back up. We're going to just come before God now. I'm just going to ask you, invite you to be vulnerable. And that might mean changing your position. You know, if, if you find it hard to focus on your heart in a particular place where you're sitting or standing, or, then change that position. You know, we're here to engage with the Lord and each other. You might need to go and stand at the back. You might need to come to the front. You might need to come on your, drop onto your knees. You know, whatever posture helps you to truly relate to God vulnerably without anybody else judging, let's just agree not to judge each other now and just to allow each other to just connect with God in our own way. Um, there's that lovely um, line in a song, my fears and doubts, they can all come too. You, know, you may be just struggling with doubt right now. You may be struggling with something that's been said or a doubt that you have about whether God will accept you or even a doubt about something in God's word. Bring it to God. Bring it to God. Don't think, I can only come to God when I've sorted that fear out or that doubt out. Come, bring it to God. That can come too. So we're going to try to um, connect with God in our heart now, not from the outside in, but from the inside out.